Thank you so much, Parker, for helping us today, leading us in worship, and choir and instrumentalists for beautiful worship. Turn to John's Gospel, the ninth chapter, John chapter 9, physical and spiritual blindness. John chapter 9. Before we begin our story about being blind and then seeing, we need to make a few observations about how this story would have fit into a first century Jewish culture. First of all, have you ever realized that there is no story in the entirety of the Old Testament of a blind person ever seen? There is no story in the Old Testament of a blind person ever seeing. So this is a big deal. Secondly, in the Old Testament, though we don't have a blind person seeing, when there is conversation about the power to give sight, it is God who has that power. For example, example in Exodus 4.11 we read, Who has made man seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Who has made man seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? And then thirdly, the ability to create or restore sight had messianic overtones in the Old Testament. That when the Messiah comes, he will cause the blind to see. For example, Isaiah 35, 5, when the Messiah comes, the implication is the eyes of the blind will be opened. Therefore, from the Jewish culture, we can see that giving sight to the blind is the work of God, even the work of the Messiah. So when Jesus arrives and has the ability to cause the blind to see, he's doing the work of God that no Old Testament prophet could do, and he's doing the work of the Messiah because now the blind can see. In fact, the very act of causing the blind to see in and of itself is a declaration that Jesus is the Holy One of Israel, the Son of God. Now, think about the New Testament. In fact, the only other person to do anything like causing the blind to see is when Ananias is directed by God to pray over Saul, Paul, and scales fall from his eyes. You remember that story? Outside of that, there's not even another character in the New Testament that has the ability to cause the blind to see. In fact, if you think about it, the apostles retained a lot of Jesus' abilities after Jesus ascends to heaven. In fact, you can think about Peter and John going into the temple, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have, I say to you, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, arise and walk. So after Jesus ascends, the lame are still leaping, but the blind aren't seeing anymore. You with me? So the ability to cause the blind to see is something unique to God and to God's Son, the Messiah. Another thing I want you to know before we begin, 
There are more stories of Jesus causing the blind to see than any other healing miracle that he might do. More than lame leaping, any other, more than any other miracle, this is the Messiah's miracle. This captures his essence. He is giving sight to the blind. Well, we begin the passage that Corky read, who sinned, verses 1 through 5. Who sinned? Well, you can see in that culture, it was assumed that if someone had a malady, then there was a sin in their life. And so the disciples are trying to figure out how could someone actually be born blind? Because did he sin in the womb? Oh, that, that couldn't be. How would he even know right from wrong in the womb? So, oh, I get it, say the disciples. Maybe his parents sinned, and the sin passed down, the suffering, the sin and the suffering passed down to the next generation. So how did this happen, Rabbi? How, how could he sin and, and be born blind? Is it his sin? Is it his parents' sin? Then whose is it? Innocent suffering has never been easy to explain, not in the first century and not even today. What we want within ourselves is a hard and fast equation where good behavior leads to blessings and somehow poor behavior leads to curses. That's what we want. Why that's the equation we want is not the equation we get. From the story of Job in the Old Testament to the myriad of images in modern media today, we cannot escape the fact that innocent people sometimes do suffer. Trying to solve that problem of innocent suffering is, is so hard for us to do, like the rape of a child or someone entering a, a country church and gunning down 49 people, even as they're singing praises to God. See, what we cannot figure out is if God is all-powerful and God is all-good, then how can we have innocent suffering? You see the triangle? If one of those things wasn't true, we could understand. In fact, if God were all-powerful, but God wasn't completely all-good, that sometimes he was cranky on a day and wanted to hurt somebody, then we could explain innocent suffering. But we don't believe that. We believe that God is all-good. Well, if, if God's all-good, then the baby's not all-powerful. Maybe he doesn't want innocent suffering, but maybe he can't stop it. And so if we believe that God was all-good, but God was not all-powerful, then we could explain innocent suffering. But that doesn't work for us either, does it? Because we believe that God is all-good and all-powerful, so thus we have the problem of innocent folks suffering. It, that working out of the idea of innocent suffering is called theodicy, and it's something I'll spend my lifetime doing, as will you. Well, there are a few things that I have been able to work out over the years, and number one is this. Sin and suffering are intimately connected. Sin and suffering are intimately connected, and that's what the disciples see, and that's why they can't make sin sense of a man born blind. There's a complex relationship between sin and suffering, and we can work it all the way back to the tragic results 
of the fall. Before Adam sinned, there was no suffering. Before Adam sinned, there was no death. So even indirectly, there is a complex relationship between sin and suffering. One rabbi said, there is no death without sin. There is no suffering without iniquity. So that's how we see that connection. Number two, sometimes specific sin does result in specific punishment. You remember back last week's sermon in John chapter 5 when we had the man who was healed from his lameness that Jesus said to him in John 5, 14, do not sin anymore lest something worse befall you. So in that case, in John chapter 5, the lame man, his sin was connected to his suffering. But sometimes it is, and yet sometimes it isn't. Number three, sometimes sin isn't directly connected to suffering. Like in this case, when the disciples say, now how could he be born blind? Did he sin? Did his parents sin? And Jesus said, neither. No one sinned. This is to bring glory to God. We will see the works of God. Neither is what Jesus says. Number four, Jesus' acts of healing, where they're causing the lame to leap, or the blind to behold light are all part of that cosmic redemption. is a rewinding of the fall and restoring of the innocence that existed before man's disobedience brought brokenness. That every time Jesus heals, it is a restoration back to the Garden of Eden. It is fixing the brokenness that sin has allowed to enter the world. Number five... We can be sure that sometimes innocent people suffer because, look at Jesus. He is the most innocent one ever. Jesus is the most innocent one ever. And yet, the one most innocent actually, actually suffers. So, God is not far away, but he knows about our suffering God is not far away. In fact, God put on flesh, and he had a back which could bleed and skin which could be broken, so he, as an innocent one, can suffer. And finally, as my friend Jim Dennison says, God redeems all that God allows. God redeems all that God allows. Allows. We cannot always see on this side how suffering brought glory to God, but one day we'll know that no suffering is wasted, that if we die with Him, we rise with Him, and if we suffer with Him, likewise we are glorified with Him. Well, let's, let's look at verse 4. We must work the works of Him who sent me. It is not just the work of the Messiah himself, but it is the work of those who are co-laborers with the Messiah. We, not just the Messiah, we must work the works of God who sent Jesus. And we must do it as long as his day, because the night is coming when no man can work. The night is coming when no man can work. The day represents someone's lifetime. 
And the night comes when the Messiah is taken. So while the Messiah is here, we are to do the work of the Messiah. In verses 6 through 7, we have clay to his eyes. Clay to his eyes. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied clay to his eyes. And he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. And he went away and he washed, and he came back seeing. Clay to his eyes. Jesus heals whomever he wishes, however he wishes. If you look through the New Testament and you try to come up with a formula to always say, this is what's going to happen next when Jesus heals, you'll never be able to come up with that formula, will you? Because Jesus heals whomever he wishes, however he wishes. For example, sometimes the healing requires faith on the part of the one being healed. Sometimes they don't seem to have any faith at all. Sometimes Jesus heals just with the command of his voice, and other times he touches, or in this instance, he even makes clay with, with his spittle, and so he does it different ways. And sometimes the healing is instantaneous. It happens all at once, and sometimes the healing gradually occurs through a process. Well, in this particular story, Jesus spits on the ground he kneads the clay together with the dust of the earth. He applies it to the man's eyes, and he tells him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. As a result of this multi-step miracle, the man is able to see. Well, first of all, I want you to see this in this section. The ancient world attributed curative powers to saliva, the ancient world, well, attributed curative powers to saliva. And best I can tell, so did my grandmother because uh, she would lick and spit all over us when we were growing up. So um, I, I guess that uh, belief continued to, the, to her day at least. Furthermore, it was perhaps helpful for the man to participate in his own healing. By doing something, by participating in his healing, well, then it made it real for him. And, and thirdly, the earliest church fathers saw this as a work of creation. They would take it back to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, where man is made, what, from the dust of the earth. And so when he makes the clay from the dust of the earth and applies it to the man's eyes, and the man comes back seeing, he is doing the work of creation. He is bringing life out of the dust of the earth. The pool is called Siloam. It means sent. It, it was called sent because there was a channel built and water was channeled into this pool. But interestingly enough, the whole theme of this gospel is, well, that, God, that Jesus is the one sent from God. So in the pool of sent, the one who is sent brings sight to the man He's born blind. Well, in verse 13 through 17, we have an interrogation of the healed. An interrogation of the healed. Look at verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees him who was formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made clay and opened his eyes. 
And again, therefore, the Pharisees also were asking him how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was no, there was a division among them. They said, therefore, to the blind man again, what do you say about him? Since he opened your eyes, and he said, he's a prophet. Now, the fact that he's healing on the Sabbath is nothing new. And last Sunday's sermon, remember, the lame man was able to walk even on the Sabbath, and that caused quite a stir. And we learned last week that Jesus kept on healing on the Sabbath, and they were really angry at Jesus for doing that. Well, we have three sections here. In verses 13 through 17, the Pharisees examine the healed man. The Pharisees examine the healed man. In verses 18 through 23, they have a conversation with the healed man's parents, with the healed man's parents, 18 through 23. And then 24 through 34, they come back to the blind man and they get a second testimony from him. Well, in verse 16, some of the Pharisees are saying, he can't be from God because he didn't keep the Sabbath. But others are saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. Apparently, there's a division of the Pharisees. The majority report is he can't be from God because he's healing on the Sabbath. There is a minority report which says, well, yeah, but how could he do these signs if he were a sinner? Do you remember back to John chapter 3 when Nicodemus comes to see Jesus at night? Do you remember what he says? We know that you're from God. No one can do the signs that you do unless he's sent from God. So some of them feel like that, but we don't hear anything else from the minority report, and so uh, perhaps they didn't win the day. They were most angry that he actually healed on the Sabbath. I want you to notice a progression here and how the, the man who receives his sight understands the identity of Jesus. Look at verse 11. They ask him, how, did you, how were your eyes opened? Verse 11, he answered, The man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes. So at first, he simply sees the rabbi as the man called Jesus. Then look at verse 17. They said, therefore, to the blind man again, What do you say about him who opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. So we go from simply the man called Jesus, and then he's called the prophet. And then I want you to look at at verse 38. What does he think there about the one who gave him sight? In verse 38, he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. While the physical side is somewhat instantaneous, the application of the clay, the washing the pool, the coming back seeing. The spiritual blindness is healed more slowly. First, he's a man called Jesus, and then he's a prophet, and then he is Lord, I believe. 
Verses 18 through 23, we have these parents who pass the buck. The parents who pass the buck. Their son is courageous, but, well, the parents not so much so. The parents not so much so. Look at, look at verse 21. Well, look at verse 20. The parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and we will testify that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we don't know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him, he's of age, and he shall speak for himself. For his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess him to be the Christ, they would be put out of the synagogue. In this odd, the blind man is courageous and confrontational, and the parents are timid and cowardly. You would think if you had had a child who was born blind that you couldn't be grateful enough, that you would shout the, the name of the one who healed your son from the rooftop. you think you would stand up and rejoice about his redemption and the gaining of his eyesight, but they don't. Verse 21 could be translated this way. Uh, he's a big boy. You ask him. I don't know. He's a big boy. You ask him. Verse 22 they did this because they knew the Jews had already agreed that if anyone called Jesus the Christos, the Messiah, they would be kicked out of the synagogue. To be kicked out of the synagogue would be to lose community, to lose your Jewish culture, to lose everything. And they didn't want to lose their community and their culture. And so they do not express their gratitude. They are so cowardly for fear of excommunication. Verses 24 through 34, once was blind. Once was blind. Well, they, they come to the blind man yet again. It's almost like the police interrogating a suspect one more time, hoping there'll be an inconsistency in his story, that somehow they'll see something different this time. They ask him all over again, how is it that you see he had already told them, and in fact, he becomes frustrated with them. They tell him in verse 24 that the man who healed him is a sinner, and the man replies in verse 25, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know I once was blind, but now I see. I'm not theologically equipped to debate with you, the man saying. I'm not a Pharisee. I'm not a scribe. I'm not a Sadducee. I have no abilities to, to debate with you. I'm not a rabbi. Whether the man who healed me is a sinner or not, I have no idea. But I can tell you this one thing. I once was blind, and now I see. You see, we don't have to be a wonderful theologian to be able to share our testimony. That was his testimony. This one thing I'm certain of, I was blind, but now I see. What would your testimony be today? I once was held captive to sin, but now I'm free. This one thing I'm absolutely certain of, I once was in the chains of addiction, but now, let me tell you, but now I am free. Let me tell you this, I once was afraid of death, and now because of his empty tomb, now 
I know life is eternal for those who call him Lord. I can't be sure of everything, but I'm sure of this. I once was, but now I. What's your testimony? I once was aimless, but now I have a reason and a person to live for. It's a masterful stroke when, when he gives that testimony. In fact, in verse 30, you can tell he, he kind of begins to goad them just a little bit. Look at verse 27. He said, I told you already, and you did not listen. You want to hear it again? Do you want to be his disciple too? I kind of like that, don't you? I mean, I'm giving you my story. Do you want to know some more information about him so you can start following that rabbi too? And they said, you are his disciple, but we're disciples of Moses. And then he says in verse 30, well, that's an amazing thing. You don't know where he's from, and he opened my eyes. Now, that's an amazing thing. You're supposed to know about all things religious, and this gentleman has the power of the Messiah. Look at verse 32, because no one ever calls the blind to see before. This is an amazing thing that he has the power of God. He does the acts of the Messiah, and you do not know who he is. Verse 34, they boot him out. They put him out of the synagogue. Verses 35 through 38, believe and worship. Believe and worship. Look at verse 35. And Jesus heard that he had been put out, and finding him, he said, do you remember last sermon? Jesus went and found the man at the temple who, who had been lame but was now walking. And here again, Jesus goes and finds the one that he's healed. In John's gospel, if Jesus is looking for you, he will find you. True then, true today, if Jesus is looking for you, he will find you. He found him. And Jesus says to him, do you believe in the Son of Man? Isn't it amazing in John's gospel how quickly Jesus gets to the meat of the matter? No peripheral talk, no small talk. Do you believe in the Son of Man, the character from Daniel, who seeth the right hand of God, who brings the judgment of God? Do you believe in the Son of Man? He recognizes the voice of Jesus, the one who healed him. And he said, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Look at verse 37. You have both seen him. You get that, don't you? The blind man has seen the Messiah. The one who was once blind that now sees has really seen. Not only is he seeing physically, not only could he testify now, I once was blind, but now I see. Now he could testify, I once didn't know the Messiah, and now I have beheld him. I have seen him. Jesus says, you have seen me. And he is the one who is talking to you, and he calls him Lord. 
And he said, Lord, I believed. In verse 38, you have the only act of anybody worshiping Jesus in the whole gospel of John. And he worships him. Proscunio is the Greek. He, he worships Jesus, the only one who's a subject of that verb in this whole gospel. He worships Jesus. He worships him. The irony is thick. The Pharisees can't see, and the man born blind can see. Verses 39 through 41, I entitled blind as bats, blind as bats. Look at 39. And Jesus said, for judgment I came this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And the Pharisees who were with him heard these words, and they said to him, we're not blind too, are we? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you'd have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains what a, a change in the story. It begins with a man who's been born blind, who ends up seeing physically and seeing spiritually, and it ends with the Pharisees mocking Jesus and saying, we'll always see, won't we? We're not the blind ones you're talking about. You see, not only were they wrong, they had constructed a system by which they would never see that they were wrong. Not only were they wrong, they lived in a sealed system. There was no insight, no fresh air, no light could possibly enter from the outside. The light came, and they missed it. And the ones who claimed to see were, in fact, actually blind. What would your testimony be this morning? I once was, but now I. What has Jesus done for you in such a way that you could say, I don't know all the theological truths in the world, but this one thing I'm absolutely certain of. I once was, but now I. That's a testimony of the blind man in John 9. And it didn't matter how much more theology the Pharisees knew. It didn't matter how much more the oral law they obeyed. It didn't matter. That was what had happened to him. It was what he experienced. It was real for him, and everybody knew that he had been blind. It was his irrefutable testimony. I once was blind, but now I see. What were you once? I once was enslaved to sin, but now I'm free. I once was afraid of death, but now the empty tomb. I once had no purpose, but now I live to know him and to make him known, what's your testimony? I once was, but not now. Now that Jesus has passed by, everything has changed. Let us pray.
Oh God, we're all the blind man of John 9. And may we all join him in saying, Lord, I believe, and we've gathered today like the blind man to worship him. Maybe there's someone here this morning or someone watching by way of television and, and Jesus has come to find them today. And this is her day. This is his day for Jesus to walk by and to open her eyes or his eyes. Maybe this is the day when Jesus stops at their place and changes everything. Maybe there are others, oh God, who would come this morning to be a part of this wonderful church. However you would call us, may we be obedient. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.